Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. All right, week one in a message series called Who Are You? What we're going to be doing for the next couple of Sundays is we're going to be talking about how we see ourselves and how we define ourselves. The goal here is to see ourselves as God sees us. Because if we see ourselves as God sees us, we will define ourselves as God defines us. So we'll make this for an opening statement. We all have some struggles, yeah? Everybody here's got some struggles. We all have some stuff we're wrestling with. At any given time, at any given moment, everybody here is carrying some kind of pain, some kind of difficulty or issue uh, that, that, that weighs us down, you know? Hopefully, those, uh, those difficult times, those valleys are offset by times uh, of good things happening and feeling good, but sometimes it's a long valley. Sometimes it's difficult. We all have pain that we're carrying. The pains that you carry, the difficulties that you carry are, of course, unique to you and to your situation, but there are struggles that are almost universal, struggles that we all wrestle with, and one of those struggles is the challenge that we face in seeing ourselves the way God sees us. What we tend to do is we see ourselves through false metrics. We define ourselves in other ways. And the three ways that's mo- that are most common, the three, the three ways that we tend to misdefine ourselves are through the lenses of our greatest accomplishments, or we define ourselves through the lenses of our worst failures, or we define ourselves through the lenses of what everybody else says about us. And no matter where you are, no matter how that works, you're going to miss the mark because none of those things is, is, is the, the, the formula for who you are. Who you are is who God says you are. That's how that works. God made you. He gets to define you. What we do is we tend to define ourselves according to these other, these other metrics and these other matrices, right? So some of you guys know what it's like to define yourself according to your greatest victories, right? We all know somebody like this. Do you know somebody who will not let you forget that they were the prom queen back in the day? They just find a way to work it into the conversation. Oh, well, back when I was the prom, you know, or you know that there's that guy you know who he, he was the captain of the basketball team and they went to states that one year, you know, and that was like his, his crowning achievement in life and so that he's kind of still living with that. There are people all over the place in various walks of life who define themselves according to their, their, their peak moments, you know. Today, right now, there are thousands, probably maybe tens or even hundreds of thousands of actors who had a close brush with fame, you know, who really believed they thought they were going to have what it takes to be that next list of, I mean, and, and it's like hundreds of thousands of working actors in this country. How many names are on the A list? You know, 10, 20 tops. Like every one of those people in the, in the trenches duking it out and digging it out, like they want to get to the A-list, but they had their brush with fame. They, they got that one part where they auditioned with Tom Cruise, you know, where they got to, they got to share screen time. For, for two seconds, they were in the same frame of film as Russell Crowe or somebody important, you know, and, and, and that's their claim to fame. They, they were this close. Same thing with professional athletes, yeah? It's football season. You guys will watch some football today probably. The average... The average, you know, uh, career of an NFL player is three seasons. That's the average, 
right? So for everybody you know or have seen or heard of who's had a 10-season career, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of other guys who had like a two-month career or a three-month career before an injury uh, sidelined them permanently or before they were cut. And now they're living the rest of their life going, I was this. I, for this window of time, I wasn't in the NFL. I had reached the pinnacle. This was what I had wanted since I was a little kid, and I got there. And, and, and now for, for this window of time, they earned gobs of money and had all the fame and all the recognition, and now it's all gone. I was with a friend of mine about, how about, probably it's about 10 years ago now. We were in Nashville, and we were having breakfast. It was like a bougie little, if, if, if a breakfast place can be bougie, Nashville has one. You feel me? So we're in this little breakfast cafe, and my buddy says to me, hey, uh, you want to see something sad? I said, sure. And he goes, if you can do it without being too obvious, just sort of look over your left shoulder. So I went. <laughs> I, I did one of these. I was, you know, and there's a guy sitting two booths over. And he's uh, older than me, but not old, well-dressed, kind of, you know, looks like he's got himself together, sipping his coffee, looking around with his head up, looking around the restaurant. And I'm like, what's, I don't, I missed it. What's the sad part? And he goes, well, that's, so-and-so, and, so. and he, he mentioned the name of a country artist. And I'm not, that's not my world, but it was a name I, I had heard. And I said, oh, okay, like, that's good, right? Like, I mean, he, I'm not even into country music, and I've heard of him. He had some songs, right, that, that made it. And my buddy goes, yeah, 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 he had some songs that made it. He had, his last hit was 10 years ago, and now he's sitting in this cafe hoping somebody recognizes him. And I went, you're kidding. He goes, no, nah, it's, it's all over this town. So many musicians had a one-hit wonder or had a track that was recorded by so-and-so or had a brush. They had that one time when they opened in concert for the big act, and now they're just living on that moment and hoping it will lead to something else. And when it doesn't, it just, they, they, they just kind of walk around hoping somebody wants to take a selfie with them or, or that they get invited into something somehow. I'm like, yeah, actually, that is pretty sad. But, you know, we all have that tendency in us to, to sort of define ourselves by our best moments. The one time I did this, the time I, I, I got to that, you know, goal and I, I achieved this. And, and, and for some of you, it rattles you, particularly if it's a professional thing, because maybe now you're worried that your best days are behind you, that you'll never again rise to the level you were once at when that awesome thing happened. These are the thoughts that haunt us late at night. This stuff is scary. Others of us define ourselves according to our worst moments. I almost don't even have to preach on that, do I? Like, we, I almost don't even have to unpack that. We all know what it's like to define ourselves according to our worst moments. So maybe your deal was you didn't have a, a, a brush, a close call with fame or a close call or a, or, or a short time in the NFL. Maybe you had a short time embedded within the criminal justice system, yeah? Maybe you had a short time on the wrong end of a loaded weapon. Maybe you had a short time where you betrayed somebody or did something awful and, and, and had a time when you were addicted to something and relapsed. And, you, and now you, you want to define yourself. There's something in you that, that is trying to define you according to your worst moment. And you've gone through something difficult and, th and thought, you know, if God loved me, why this? If God, if God cared for me, then why this? And those difficult moments, those hard moments are the things sometimes by which we define ourselves. And it's wrong. You're not an amalgam of your best moments and your worst moments. You're not, you're not the, 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 the zero-sum average 
of your good deeds and your bad deeds, your struggles and your, your wins. It's just not how it works. And then others of us define ourselves according to what other people think. Lots of that going on right now. A lot of people defining their whole existence, their whole jam, according to what's going on on social media. What's being said about them. What they're saying about others. How people are, how people are pinging them or commenting or not commenting. A lot of, lot of anxiety coming up, especially in younger people. And you're not, that has nothing to do with who you are. And the tricky part of this, the thing you may not notice, the thing that might not come front and center for you on this, is that whether you're identifying yourself according to your greatest moment, or whether you're identifying yourself according to your worst moment, or whether you're identifying yourself according to the opinions of others, it is still all about you. It's still all about you. All of that thinking makes you inward focused. All of that is all me-centered thinking. If, you're, if it's your greatest moments, well, yeah, of course, it's all about you. You're according to, you define yourself according to your worst moments, yeah, it's still kind of all about you. You define yourself according to what everyone else thinks about you, all about you. You come to church here, within any three-week period, you're going to hear me talk about or hear one of our teaching team talk about how you have a purpose to play, a part to play in a vast story. And it's different for each of us, but the things we have in common in this is that we are called to honor God, love others, and serve all. But if you're defining yourself according to these other matrices, if you're defining yourself according to these other measuring sticks, you'll never play the part that God gave you to play. It'll never be Honor God, love others, serve all. If you're defining yourself according to your greatest moments, your worst moments, or the opinions of others, it'll never be honor God, love others, serve all. You will default to honor me, serve me, make others jealous. And, you'll, and you won't know it's happening. You'll stand in here and praise God and sing the songs and mean it. And listen to the sermon and nod and go, yeah, and then leave. And, and, and if, you're, if your measurements are off, if the grid you're using to superimpose over your life, by which, define, by which you define yourself, is off, you're going to steer right back into honor me, serve me, make others jealous. And you will live your life that way. So how do we fix that? How do we get around that? Well, a good place to start is to say, We're not the first ones to struggle with this. In point of fact, Jesus was tempted along these lines. So what we're going to do is turn back the clock and travel back in time, roughly 2,000 years, to Jesus' baptism. Right after Jesus' baptism, the scriptures tell us he was led into the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. And that's what we're going to drop into. This is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Okay, 
A lot of people get this temptation goofed up. They get it backwards. Because Jesus is fasting and it says that he's hungry, and because the temptation mentions bread, a lot of people just default right into thinking Jesus is trying to fast, so the devil's got this delicious, like, steaming loaf of crispy, you know, crunchy bread and, like, olive oil dipping sauce. And, you know, you know, do you want to eat some bread, Jesus? Like, that's, that's not what's going on. There's no bread present. Even if there were bread present, it wouldn't be a sin for Jesus to eat bread. So, uh, that's just not what's happening. The temptation doesn't come in, hey, you can, you're, you're omnipotent, you know, you, you can turn a, a stone into a loaf of bread, why don't you do that for yourself? That's not the temptation. The temptation comes in the first part of the sentence, which is, if you really are the Son of God, if you're really Him, because if the enemy can plant a seed of doubt as to who He is, it's game on. And it might be game over. If he can get Jesus to doubt who he is, why would he do that? Why would he have an opening there? Because this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Did you know that Jesus did not begin his public ministry till he was 30? Yeah, so for 30 years, God has been working in a carpentry shop. For 30 years, God incarnate has been a carpenter making tables and chairs and bowls and cups and stuff for others and probably doing a great job of it. I can't prove it, but I'm assuming Jesus was an amazing carpenter because he was God and that helps. (laughs) But on this day, how many followers does Jesus have? None. How many miracles has Jesus performed? None that we know of. Nothing is going on. There's nothing public. There's nothing on the radar. He has accomplished nothing according to the the naked eye. Now, I'm sure he lived a life that honored God and was good at his craft and was kind to everyone around him as any good person would, but there's been nothing profound. There's nothing miraculous. There are no followers. There's nothing going on. So the opening is, are you sure you're him? Because we both know what's waiting for you at the end of this road. And we both know there is horror and torture coming for you in the shape of a cross. And if you could just start to doubt for a minute that you're him, maybe a better move would be You step off that road and you find somebody to settle down with and you raise a family and just live out the rest of your life like the normal guy that you are, Jesus. How about that? That's the temptation. That's what's going on in this text. It's not the bread. It's the what if, what if you're not him? How will you define yourself? According to what you've done? Because at this moment, Jesus has done nothing but we have this, I mean, it's, it's normal. From, from our infancy, we define ourselves according to what we've been done. When you're a baby, if you eat all your vegetables, it's, oh, you did so good. You're, what a good boy, what a good girl. When you're being potty trained, oh, look, you made a poo-poo. You're so good. You get to kindergarten. 
You do good on your stuff. You do good on your drawings. You do good on whatever. You, you are praised. From, from all the way through grade school, you do well on your tests. You do well at, your, at the stuff you put your hand to. People praise you and reward you with some affirmation. It's always been that way. And some of you came up in families, and I don't mean, like, don't, don't point your finger or anything, but, like, some of you came up in a family where you could get straight A's, and heaven forbid you get an A- minus or, or, or the inconceivable B+, plus, and your parents will not, will, will ignore the A's, and focus on the one place where maybe you didn't absolutely kill it. And that, that, that does something to you. It triggers things deep inside of you that you don't have a good vocabulary for. You're just certain that maybe something is wrong with you because the love that you crave and the affirmation that you have craved from your parents all these years has been withheld. So now you just turned into a machine. There's something in you that wants to do more and more and more and do better and do better and better so somehow you can earn the love of God. And I can relate. I can relate. I never knew a moment of affirmation from my father growing up. It took me years to punch through that. To believe that God, my heavenly father loves me apart from, from what I do and, and, and how I operate. And it's, there are still times. You know, I, I, I'm not immune to this. We're all in this together. I, when I get done preaching, like this is my third message of the day. First two went pretty good. We'll see about this one. <laughs> when I'm done, I walk off the stage. I walk down the ramp. I take off my microphone. And, and sometimes... I get done preaching, and I think to myself, that was good. <laughs> Sometimes I come down like, that was good, man. You worked hard. You prepped well. You, 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 you delivered well. You worked on your craft. You approached it with excellence. You honored God in all of it. You did good. And there's other times I walk off the stage, and I'm, my self-talk is like, at no point in that discourse did you approach anything close to a coherent thought. Everyone in the room is dumber for having listened to you. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. Like, that's, that's what comes up in me sometimes. Like, dude, you just set the kingdom of God back 10 years with that sermon. Like, no one understood that. That was so, but, and, and, there, and there are, in, the, in those moments, when I feel like I've done good, I'm so much more likely to drive home thinking, man, God loves me. I'm in a good place. And when I feel like I've not done my best or like I failed in some way, it's just so easy for me to believe God kind of is disappointed. I don't think that consciously, but that wiring is still in there. Can you relate to that? That wiring is still, is still, is still in there. And so what I have to do then is to go back from the verses we read to the verses right before that. I told you this was the, 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 those verses about the temptation took place after the baptism. This is from the text, uh, uh, the story of Jesus' baptism. This is Ma Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Another translation says, in whom I am well pleased. This is better. He brings me great joy. So Jesus comes up out of the water. 
the, the heavens open and a, a voice is heard booming saying, this is my beloved son. I love, a voice basically says, I love this guy. Oh, I love him. I'm just crazy about this guy. He makes me so happy. He brings me great joy. And you, well, some of you, you've never thought about God like that. It's never dawned on you that when God looks at you, you bring him joy, that you trigger joy in your heavenly father. And when he sees you, he's full of love and he, he cares and, and he's just crazy about you. And it's not because of all the cool stuff you've done. He just loves you because you're his. That's how you get defined. You're his. He made you. He gets to define you. You belong to him. He's your heavenly father, and you are his beloved son or daughter, and that has nothing to do with your accomplishments. It has nothing to do with him rescuing you from your failures. That has nothing to do with the opinions of others. It's just because you're his. Fathers, particularly with fathers and sons, man, this is tough. I remember so vividly, you know, my, my, son, my son Timothy is a senior in high school now, but when he was a little guy, he used to play Little League. He's always playing Little League. It's winter, summer, spring, fall, just year-round, it felt like I was always in a folding chair with a hoodie and my 7-Eleven coffee freezing watching a baseball game when nobody had business watching baseball. And he was a utility infielder. He could play almost any position, but what he loved was pitching. He could throw. And when you're nine years old, you don't have a lot of control. You know, like there's not a lot of consistency. If you can get the ball over the plate, kind of, it's a good day. So there'd be times when he would get up to throw, and he would just, just pound home strikes. I mean, I, I watched... Multiple times, I watched innings where it was three up, three down, three strikeouts. And I'm there going, that's my boy. <laughs> High five another dad's like, yeah. And then, and then sometimes the very next inning, he would pitch an inning that lasted for a week. They're hitting everything. They're just crushing everything he throws. The other infielders are bobbling the ball, so there's never an outmate, and he's just up there struggling and struggling and struggling. And I could vividly, I mean, it is so crystal clear in my mind the difference in his body language after the game. You know, when, when, when he did good, when he had a good game, he'd come trot-trotting over, he'd have his bat over his shoulder, look me in the eye, hey, Dad, what's up? Are we going to go get a Slurpee? Yeah, we're going to go get a Slurpee. Of course we're going to go get a Slurpee. Young dads in the room, you always get a Slurpee after the game. That's what you do. Take note of this. Yeah, we're going to go get a Slurpee. But if the game didn't go well, oh, I can see it. Bats being dragged on the ground behind him. He's shuffling his feet, and he won't look me in the eye. Hey, Dad. What could be going on in his little head that makes him think I somehow love him less because of what happened out there? What could possibly be happening in his head I don't know, but I got a little bit of it up here. And maybe so do you. Maybe so do you. 
Maybe you think your heavenly father sees you through this set of lenses through which you've been defining yourself, that he sees you as a good thing that happened in the past with no further potential, or a bad thing that happened in the past that now defines you, or some weird cocktail of all these different ingredients, including your successes, failures, and what everybody else is saying about you. Maybe God defines you that way. Maybe that's part of the faulty wiring. Loved ones, we got to pull the plug on that wiring. God loves you because you're his. And when you fail, as we all do, God doesn't love you any less. You still bring him great joy. Now, this is going to be hard for you if, like me, you never knew a moment of affirmation from your earthly father. It's just real easy for me to imagine God looking at me and giving me that, that shake of the head and, and just that feeling of being an utter disappointment. That's, that's, I mean, it was a lot of long walks at night, a lot of prayer, and a lot of therapy for me to punch through that. You feel me? So go see a therapist if you need to. It's good for you. So, for you, for me, and for your children, know and believe, this may require faith, believe that when God sees you, he doesn't shake his head. And you don't need to drag your feet and avoid eye contact and act like you're, you're somehow a failure in his eyes. He loves you, he's crazy about you, and you bring him great joy. Not because of what you've accomplished, not in spite of what you fail to accomplish, but simply because you are his. And we'll pick it up right from here for part two next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we're grateful, just grateful, grateful, grateful that we, we have these words in scripture that remind us this way, that we're yours that we're yours, that we don't have to earn your love, that we don't have to come uh, shuffling our feet and avoiding eye contact, feeling miserable about ourselves. Father, we're all, we're all broken and messed up. That's on the table. But because of your love for us, we're also saved by grace. And so we pray this week, Beginning now, beginning today, would you just send reminders on a regular basis that we're yours, that we bring you great joy, not because of what we've accomplished or in spite of what we fail to accomplish, but simply because we're yours. Quicken our hearts to believe that. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give. Or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word True North to 77977 on your cell phone and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.